Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called God in the Margins. Now, what is a margin? Well, a margin is the space that we don't use. It's not central. It's on the periphery. It's the place that we usually ignore. And yet, when we read the Gospel of Luke, we discover something surprising. Jesus loved the margin. He spent most of his time with people who were forgotten and ignored. So join us in this series as we learn that God doesn't just love the margins. God is in the margins. And of course, be sure to check us out at tablechurchdsm.org and reach out if you need anything at all. Now, please enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning. Um, I'm Hannah Lorfeld, and I'm going to read our scripture for today. It's from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. And if you don't have one at home, you can take that with you. Um, But it begins, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. I want to tell you about two different men. Both these men are rich. Both of them are powerful. But the similarities between them ends right there. The first man goes to church regularly He tithes, he donates to nonprofits, he is an upstanding citizen, he makes his parents proud, everybody wants to be his friend, and all the pastors in town wish that he was in their congregation. The second man, he got rich off the backs of the poor. He keeps all the money that he swindled to himself, and although he grew up among the poor, he turned his back on his community and now exploits them in order to get wealthy. We meet both of these men in the book of Luke. The first one we meet in chapter 18, and the second one we meet in chapter 19. The first man, the faithful churchgoer, if you will, he shows his respect to Jesus. He comes to him and he calls him good teacher, and he asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A very good question. A question, in fact, that I wish more people would ask me as a pastor. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you should keep the law, the commandments. And he says, I've done all these things since I was a boy. Again, he's a good guy. And Jesus says, well, you're missing one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. It says that this man became sad. Because in that moment, apparently, he realizes that although he does love God, he apparently loves something else even more. 
his wealth. Now, the second man is actually given a name. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we are told, is a chief tax collector. That means that Zacchaeus works for the Roman government. Although he is Jewish, he works for the Roman government, and he makes his fortune by overtaxing his countrymen and keeping the profits to himself. Now, he's a chief tax collector, which means he probably had employees. That's a nice way of putting it. They were probably more like slaves. And they were the ones who would go out and actually do the dirty work of collecting, forcing people to give the money. It is hard to overstate how bad the reputation of tax collectors were in the ancient world. They're pretty bad today, too, but they were a lot worse back then. The Gospels often refer to, quote, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors get their own special category outside of sinners. They get, uh, even pagan writings from the ancient world express their disdain for tax collectors. These guys were the worst. Now, whereas the first rich man goes away sad, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus ends quite different. It ends with Zacchaeus giving away half of what he has and repaying four times the amount to anybody that he swindled. And then the, Jesus ends the interaction with these words. He says, today salvation has come to this house. What is the difference between these two men? I promise you, Luke put these stories right next to each other so that we would ask that question. How could it be that one man is so close and yet so far, and then the other man seems completely irredeemable, and yet he gets it so easily? What is the difference between these two men? It's this. The difference between these two men is that one wants what Jesus could give. The other wants Jesus. Do you see the difference? Good teacher, the first man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, not a bad question, but notice he is asking, what can Jesus give him? Compare that with Zacchaeus. It says he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. See, Zacchaeus had a lot going against him. Nobody liked him. He was short. Nobody's going to let him through, you know. They're probably going to take this opportunity to stand in front of him, knowing that they can, in you know, some small way, pay him back for all the pain that he's caused them. And so Zacchaeus does something a little interesting. In fact, this would have been rather humiliating to most any adult man in, man in the ancient world. He climbs a tree in order to see Jesus. I want you to notice this difference between the two men. One man overcame obstacles to get to Jesus. The other let obstacles overcome him. We do this a lot in our life with God. We let obstacles overcome us. I mean, you know, I, I struggle to get in the Word regularly, but I'm just, I'm just not a morning person. Well, it sounds like you're letting your obstacles overcome you. You're not overcoming your obstacles. You know, I, I know I should probably come to worship, but I'm so busy. Got a lot going on. It sounds like you might be letting your obstacles overcome you rather than you overcoming your obstacles. God has been showing me obstacles lately that I have been overcome by. There's a pastor in Manhattan named John Tyson, and he was preaching a sermon. He shared a story recently about the early days when he was planting his church right in the heart of New York. 
And of course, it was growing fast, and lots of young people were coming to this church, and some people were like, what is going on here? Like, this church is like growing quickly in the middle of New York. This does not happen very often. And so the New York Times decided to run a, a, a story on the church, and they sent a reporter and a photographer to come uh, observe on a Sunday. Everyone's like, well, so excited, like, wow, cool, New York Times, you're going to be, like, you guys are going to get so much publicity from this. And John Tyson's like, I was terrified. Because, I don't know if you noticed this before, but a lot of times Christians don't exactly get like, the best publicity in the media, right? And so John's like, I was terrified. And sure enough, the article comes out. And, I mean, they use the most bizarre-looking picture of somebody worshiping. You know, like we look pretty weird when we worship sometimes. This is like the weirdest picture they could have found. And they're like a charismatic church to begin with, so it's probably even more weird. You know, like took a table church, it's like, but there, I mean, it was, like, it was like really something. And so he said every line of this, of this article was a distortion. Every angle was a distortion. It's like had this edge that was saying, look at these backward Christians who have come into our city in order to infiltrate us. And John Tyson said that in that moment, there was something in my heart that I realized it required the city of New York to respect me. I required the respect of my city. And when the article was published, it revealed that idol in his heart. And his response to this was very much like mine would have been. I mean, as I was listening to him share this story, I was, make, I was in my car, I was making like audible noises like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's me. He's like, look, I wanted to shout to everybody in the city, you don't understand, we're not like those Christians we do nuance. We're cool. I've read postmodern philosophers. It's like we're not like them trying to rescue some shred of dignity before the eyes of his community. Look, I've never had an article published on me, but uh, I'd like to keep it that way, by the way. But I've, I've been in lots of situations where I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to nuance my beliefs over and above those other Christians. I'm not like them. You know what I've found? You can't nuance your way into cool. Like, Christians, we're not cool. We're weird. Like, I don't care how nice of a spin you put on it. Like, you believe a guy came back from the dead? That's weird. It's only going to get weirder, you know? Like, there's, there's no changing this. And I realized, you know, maybe the idol of respectability is an obstacle that has overcome me. And I, in that moment, I had to repent. I had to say, God, forgive me for this. I'm a pastor, I'm a church planter. How can I be struggling with this so deeply? And yet there it was. Lord, would you pry the idol of respectability out of my heart, replace it with an other, others-focused love, where it's, I don't care what you think of me, I love you, and I believe so much that the gospel is the key to having a life of fullness and freedom and truth and beauty, that I want that for you more than I want you to respect me. And I'm not saying we're going to go do all sorts of horrible things, like, you know, I don't care what people think of me. Like, what? That's obviously not it. But nothing will stop us from loving people the way that Christ loves them. Even if it means I need to look a little silly and, I don't know, climb a tree or something. Zacchaeus, was, he laid down his respectability because he didn't want what Jesus could give. He just wanted Jesus. And so he does something ridiculous in order to see Jesus. And it doesn't end there. In fact, it gets worse. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and he eats with him. 
He has dinner at his house, and in the ancient world, of course, having, you know, sharing a table with somebody was often a deep sign of, of acceptance and love. And, and Jesus sits with Zacchaeus and his crew, and the people around them are gossiping. They say, look at Jesus, he's eating with sinners. And suddenly Zacchaeus stands up, and I, I just wish I could have seen this moment. I, I bet it was like the, the tension slowly building. Zacchaeus is sitting in the presence of Jesus. He never imagined this would happen. He wanted to see Jesus so bad that he climbed a tree, and then Jesus looks right up at him and says, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And he comes, and Zacchaeus is still like, how in the world did I get here? And all of a sudden, he doesn't know what comes over him. He slams his hands on the table. He pushes his chair back, and he stands up. He says, Jesus, today I'm going to give away half of what I have. And I'm going to repay everybody four times the amount that I took from them. It's like, wow. In other words, look, he basically does the thing the rich ruler couldn't do, and he does it unprompted. Imagine for a moment that I I stood up here, and I preached a sermon today. And I said to all of you, you know what you need to do? You need to give away half of what you have. Half of your wealth. You want to follow Jesus? You've got to give away half of your wealth. You've got to sell one of your cars. You've got to downsize your house. Your kids can all share a room. If you want to follow Jesus, that's what you have to do. What would be your response to that? I imagine that, um, I imagine that, I don't think many of you would leave the church. Most of you come back next week, but you'd be like, oh, Pastor Phil, well, that's strike one. Like, I ain't going to listen to that every week, you know? You would be offended, and perhaps you would feel that rightfully so, you would be a little offended. But that's what Zacchaeus does, and he does it unprompted. Why does Zacchaeus do this? Why does he do the thing that so many others couldn't do, including the rich ruler who, by all other measurements, was a really great guy, just one chapter earlier, how come Zacchaeus does it, the thing that nobody else can do? And I think the answer is simple. The difference between the rich ruler and Zacchaeus was hunger. The rich ruler wasn't hungry. He just wanted a snack, you know? The difference between wanting a snack and actually being hungry, every night when I get my kids to bed, after I tuck in the last child, I make a beeline for my kitchen, and I start to open the cupboards. And I start to rummage around to see what there is to eat. This is every single night. You can ask my wife. It's like built into my DNA at this point. My usual go-to is like maybe a bowl of cereal. I'm pretty deep into a large box of multi-grain Cheerios right now. If I'm feeling spicy, maybe some chips and salsa. You know, I got to have a snack. And it's not because I'm hungry. I just had dinner, like not very long ago. I'm not hungry. I just want something tasty. And that's how we often treat our faith. We're not hungry. We just want a snack. We just want a bunch of little options that we can choose from, take the things we think looks good, leave the stuff we don't want. We're not hungry. We're spiritual, spiritually snacking. Look, churches are full of spiritual snackers. We pick and we choose what we want to consume, but we don't surrender everything that we have. Not Zacchaeus. He was hungry. Here's how I know. Listen, this is the point of my sermon today. Spiritual hunger means we are desperate to surrender things in ways that would have offended us before we encountered Jesus. Think about that for a second. Like when you're spiritually hungry, you become desperate to surrender the stuff that would have offended you 24 hours ago. But now you're in the presence of Jesus and everything's different. You're like, Jesus, take it. I don't even want it anymore. Because something happens in our hearts where it's like, 
Only God can do that. If anybody had come to Zacchaeus the day before and said, Zacchaeus, here's what you need to do. You need to sell half of what you have and you need to repay everybody four times the amount. You need to give it all to the poor. Like, they probably got it kicked out of Zacchaeus' house. But when someone who is truly hungry finally encounters Jesus, the things that were offensive yesterday, we become desperate to do them today. That's what it means to be hungry. Sometimes when I was a kid, I'd go to my mom and I'd be like, Mom, I am so hungry. And she'd be like, well, here's an apple. And in my heart, I'd be like, get out of here with that apple. I don't want no apple. And she'd be like, well, I guess you're not hungry. I'd say, yeah, I'm hungry. I'm hungry for graham crackers with frosting in the middle. Or maybe some of those animal crackers with the pink icing. Don't tell me I'm not hungry. I was offended at the offer of an apple. But she was right, wasn't she? I wasn't hungry. I just wanted a snack, and I found the offer of an apple offensive. Look, we do that with Jesus, too. We say, oh, Jesus, I just want your presence. Holy Spirit, come. I surrender all, we say. Really? And then Jesus comes to us, and he's like, okay, cool. You surrender all. I heard you sing it. Okay, let's just start with 10% of what you have. Like, tithe that. And we're like, ooh, you know what? Maybe I'll just have a Bible verse pushed to my phone every morning. Like, we're, we're, we're not spiritually hungry. We're spiritually snacking here. Or Jesus comes, he says, okay, um, that person who's a real jerk to you at work, I want you to tangibly, invisibly love them. And we were like, nah, nah. God says, I, look, I have a, actually a pretty, pretty clear and easy to follow paradigm for what a successful relationship should be. And we say, no, that's from the Stone Age. You don't expect me to follow that stuff, do you? We're not spiritually hungry. We're spiritually snacking. Zacchaeus, though, he was hungry. He didn't just want what Jesus could give him. He wanted Jesus. And that's the difference between Zacchaeus and the rich man. The thing that offended the rich man was the thing Zacchaeus was desperate to do. In chapter 18, Jesus, after this encounter with the rich ruler, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you know, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And uh, so his disciples are like, well, then who can enter the kingdom of God? Because in their minds, if you're wealthy, that's a sign of God's favor. And so if a, if a, if a rich person can't enter God's kingdom, then well, what are the rest of us going to do? Who can enter the kingdom of God? And then G Jesus turns to them and he says this line that kind of, I don't know, helps resolve it. It's like the pressure release. He says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so we see that. And I think what happens is we read that line and we think, oh, cool. You know, Jesus has me covered. I don't actually really have to change anything. I don't really have to do anything. We, we, see, well, here's what happens. We, we think entering the kingdom of God is like, we think of it like this exclusive nightclub, and we're going to die, and then we're going to go, and we're going to stand outside the nightclub, and there'll be this bouncer there, and Jesus will come along and be like, no, it's cool. This guy's with me. He never really lifted a finger to follow any of my teachings in life and never really cared to either, but it's cool. Just come on in, you know? That's what we usually think entering the kingdom of God means. That, I don't think that's what it is. Listen, entering the kingdom of God is not referring to a place we try to get into after we die. 
Entering the kingdom of God means that we live the kind of life here and now where God is in charge. That's what it means to enter the kingdom. It's something for today, and it's something that requires transformation in our hearts. In chapter 19 with Zacchaeus, we see the camel pass through the eye of the needle. But the miracle is not that Jesus just says, oh yeah, Zacchaeus, he's really kind of a scoundrel, but it's all good. Don't worry about it. What's impossible with man is possible with God. You're good, man. No need to change. That's not what happens, is it? That's not the miracle. The miracle is that God changes Zacchaeus and makes him not selfish anymore. We think the needle's just going to get bigger. That's not how it works. Actually, God makes the camel smaller. <laughs> Zacchaeus is transformed into the kind of person who can do the miraculous thing. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God. We live in an age now that is highly offendable, isn't it? Uh, we, we, we could say that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for an American to surrender the things that are rightfully theirs. You know, like, it is hard for us. We get offended. By the way, sometimes offense is appropriate. I'm not saying that. There are things that are highly offens offensive. But look, we're in a time in history where if anything gets done in our culture, politically or what have you, like, it's not done through, you know, sound public discourse. It's not even really, I don't think, it's done as much through, like, sly political maneuvering. Here's how it happens in our culture today. The side that wins is the side that can muster up the most offense in its base. One of the best moral philosophers ever lived, Alistair McIntyre. He wrote that since we have no shared moral framework in our culture anymore, the way the public, that public debates are settled today is through what he calls shrillness. Whoever's the most shrill, whichever side is the loudest, the most angry, the most offended, that's the side that wins. If you can just kind of beat the other side down into submission, you win. That's how our ethics are decided now. And so if that's the way it is, and you know, I got to convince people that the other side is absolutely despicable. They have to get so offended in order to get fired up so that we would win. That's, offense is the currency of our day and age. In a, world where that is, in a world that is so easily offended, Jesus comes and he offends like everybody. But here's what I think we should realize. It's this. It's this. Listen, offense probably means there's an idol nearby. Look, I'm not saying there's never a good reason to be offended. There are. But a lot of times... Offense probably means there's an idol nearby. When something offends me, maybe that idol of respectability is nearby. If something offends you, maybe, maybe it's an idol of your money, of your wealth, of your possessions, of your comfort. And just as Jesus is asking me to lay down the idol of respectability, he's asking you to lay something down too, I think. The question is, are we hungry or are we not? Do you want Jesus or do you just want what Jesus can give? If you're hungry for Jesus, then when he asks for something that would have offended you yesterday, you respond in joy. You say, oh, Jesus, take it. Take it. I don't even want it anymore. Spiritual snackers get easily offended. Spiritually hungry do not. And so is there anything that, that God would ask of you that you bristle against? 
Ask yourself, what's the source of my offense? Could it be that the influence of people is too strong over my heart? Could it be that the idol of comfort is too strong in me? We have two clear paths laid out for us today, the rich man of Luke 18 or Zacchaeus, the rich man of Luke 19. And here's what I think Zacchaeus discovered the day that he humiliated himself and climbed a tree. I think he discovered that, you know what, Jesus is better than all of it. Jesus is better than all of it. But here's the thing, I don't think you can really understand that until you experience it. And I don't think that there's a sermon that is eloquent enough that I could spin together in order to somehow logically convince you that Jesus is better than all of the things that you hold so dearly in your heart. I cannot convince you of it. Only God can convince you of it. Sometimes you just have to take the plunge, you know? Sometimes you just have to trust that psalm we read today that God wants your, what's good for you. And sometimes the things that are hard that he calls us to are actually what's good for us. And when you do that, well, that's what the world calls foolishness. But you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than the world's wisdom. I don't think that I can say anything to convince you to somehow magically make us all grow spiritually hungry. But what I think you can do is you can recognize if you're spiritually hungry or not. And you can say, God, help me get hungry. Make me hungry. Because that's a dangerous prayer. I think that if you actually mean it, if you can admit that you're not hungry but you wish you were, and I think God will answer that, that, that prayer. I think that he will do something in your heart. And so it's a dangerous prayer, but I encourage you to pray it. Our churches are full of Luke 18 rich people. People who are spiritual snackers. We look good, we act good, and we have everything together, but when it comes right down to it, Jesus says, surrender it all to me. We say, ah, I don't think so. We're spiritual snackers. And it's time for us to grow so desperate for Jesus that we want to follow him at all costs and to lay down our pride and our rights and our riches and our glory. Jesus says, I want to be Lord of your time and your money and your body and your ethics and everything. And so it's time for us to grow spiritually hungry to the place where it's like, Please take it, Jesus. You're so much better than all of those things. And so the challenge today, the challenge is simply this. I don't know, every sermon's supposed to have like an action step. This one is simply, I don't know how to tell you to do it. Get hungry. Get hungry. If you're not hungry and you don't know how to get hungry, say, God, make me hungry. And you know how it starts? It starts by recognizing the things, the sin in our hearts. It starts... By, with repentance, when we come to the, before God and he shows us an area in our lives where we're just not, we're not doing the things we're supposed to do. And we say, oh God, I'm so sorry. That doesn't sound like much fun at first, does it? To, to repent, to, I don't know, talk about sin, like nobody likes that. When you are hungry, it is a joyful experience. When God reveals a sin in my heart, and I th you know what's cool about that? God just spoke. That's awesome. God just graced you with his word, with his presence. You just had a word, an encounter with the God of the universe. That's amazing. Repentance is beautiful. When God shows us a sin in our hearts, that's amazing. That's, that's a reason to, to be joyful. I mean, there's sorrow for our sin, but the fact that God is exposing it, that's amazing. that means he loves us. Don't be afraid. And so as we close today, um, I, I just want to just give space for you to deal with the Lord and say, Lord, 
I need to, I need to repent. I need to ask you for forgiveness for this. Take whatever posture you need right now to say, God, make me hungry. I've been snacking. <laughs> I've been taking and choosing and picking what is, whatever I want from you. I haven't wanted it all. But Jesus, whatever it takes, give me that kind of hunger for you. When just a fraction of us in this congregation become truly hungry, a fire will light in this place that the world will not help but notice. When God lights a fire in just a fraction of his people, when they move from being spiritual snackers to being spiritual hungry, being spiritually hungry, man, things will start to go down that we won't believe. Are we willing to lay our lives on the altar to ask God to show us the areas in our lives that need to change, and to stop at nothing in order to be with God. Our faith begs on the fact that God's presence is better than all that other stuff. It all hinges on that. It all comes down to that. Are we willing to actually take our beliefs and our faith in Scripture and God at His Word and, and say that it's actually true and take that step? And so I'm going to pray, but during this last song, I'm just going to come down. I'm going to pray myself um, for God to increase the hunger in me. I don't know what it is. God's been doing stuff. I've got some crazy stories. I've got a prayer series coming up. I'm going to share you some things that God's been doing in my prayer life lately. This is pretty cool. But it all started with a moment of hunger and desperation. A moment where God, where I, just, I can't do this on my own. I can't lead a church. I can't do it without God. Like, I'm good. I'm not that good. I said, God, I need you. If you need to say, God, I need you, I'm gonna invite the front. You can stay in your seat if you want. You can, somebody last service actually got down and knelt at their chair. If that's what you wanna do, then do it. But if you wanna come forward before the Lord and just pray, do it. I'll come lay my hand on you and pray with you. Prayer team, feel free to come if you want. Whatever you, whatever you need right now, do that before God. Let's pray. Lord, oh man, we're... I, I can just see how much of my life has been spent snacking, <laughs> spiritually snacking, Lord. Having sophisticated reasons why I don't need to do the things that you call me to do. Letting my theology and my knowledge of the Greek help me understand, oh, I don't actually have to live that way because I have, I have knowledge. You say about that, you say knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I don't want to be puffed up. I want to build up, Lord. I want to build people up with your love. And so, Lord, I surrender all the knowledge in the world. If I could just have one drop of the love that you experience for the broken and the hurting, would you bring that upon us today, Lord Jesus? And would you help us to just come before you and say, this is where I need to change. Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. 